Hello, my name is Fiona Trigg. I'm an assistant curator at ACME, and I'm here today with Arthur and Corin Cantrell to talk about the exhibition Light Years. Hello, Arthur and Corin. Lovely Hi, to you see you here today. <laughs> I'm wondering if we could start by talking about your concept of expanded cinema and the performances that you did, especially in the early 1970s. If you could tell me about how you came to make the transition from doing single film works through to the expanded cinema shows. Little by little, we began to feel dissatisfied with the usual screening situation of an audience walking in and seeing a film and walking out, and we hovering in the in the wings, feeling nervous about whether the film was working or not. And we wanted to bring in a, a performance aspect into the into the work. We'd vaguely heard of expanded cinema experiments, mainly in the States, um, but we hadn't seen any. And while we were at Canberra in 1970, we, um, at the ANU, where we had a fellowship, we had the, the time and the inclination to experiment a little with um, setting up screenings where we participated in the projection in one way or another. Um, we did some things there we've never been able to do since, like uh, open air, uh, projection onto a screen which we set aflame and so the screen burnt and there were flames uh, on the film um, interacting. There, was chemical, there were chemicals on the screen so they've got different coloured flames and, and also we did water projections outdoors at ANU uh, I think on you know there's big hoses that do a fan yeah, the of water and things like that but I, I think also um, we were very interested going back into the 60s in multi-screen, we'd seen Abel Gantz's, at the end of Abel Gantz's Napoleon, which is three-screen. And in London, we'd gone to a big three-screen event, uh, a lot of which had been done for one of the world fairs in Montreal, hmm. uh, something like that. I think Don Levy, yeah, the Australian Don Levy piece filmmaker, had done things. Others. So we were very interested in three-screen. And I think when we were in Canberra, we became interested in the question of film prints like you'd get a film print to say icon which is in the exhibition and every print would have a slightly different color cast so we were playing around with projecting three prints of the same film where there might be a, you know, like a warm print and a, a greenish print or a, a normal a, a, what we'd say a perfect print which are very and, few and we began print. to project them onto screens which were painted with silver or gold paint which added yet another mm. element of reflectivity and colour into the image. And, in and we've done things in Canberra we've not done since. Um, we have a, a still life film called White, Orange, Green and we reconstructed the subject, which is a still life subject, and we had a slide of it. So we had the, the real uh, still life, the slide, um, the film print, um, so that one could make a comparison between especially the slide and the film print. Um, so these became installation pieces as mm. well as performance, performance works. And bit by bit, uh, we, we developed that. And the culmination was the uh, calligraphy contest uh, performance where we project on a hand-painted film onto a black screen and I progressively colour the screen white with little calligraphic patterns that, that 
joined together and then finally when the screen's white go around the back with a Stanley knife and cut similar shapes into the into the screen. So these are the sort of things that uh, we, we, we uh, tried these out in Canberra. We had a few shows in Canberra and then in Sydney at the Filmmakers Co-op well, in Sydney yes, we gave a show. Before that, long before that we had done the show in Melbourne at the Age Gallery mm. before Sydney and of course the film for Calligraphy Contest was done by students at ANU at a weekend workshop we did on um, experimental avant-garde film and part of that three-day workshop was a session of hand painting on film so it's a joint effort by about 20 or 30 different people who each brought you know a very interesting uh, approach to uh, how they wanted to work on so that's all being put together in the film so that was a major part of the work in Canberra as well. So it was always about the audience experience as well as about the range of imagery that you could create yeah. in a live mm. situation. And, you know, the whole thing of the film screen, you know, we have the white film screen, but, you know, you could have a silver or gold or cardboard or collage. You've got the blast mm -hmm. screen in the exhibition. Uh, you know, we projected on top of that. So we were really interested in how these... Um, these screens change the viewing experience and, and so on. And what about live elements of the performance, like readings and did you ever have live music with the expanded we, cinema? We, I, I, I don't, don't think we, we had, had live music. We've certainly had live uh, readings. You know, Arthur does the blast reading. Exactly. Oh, and of course, Gary Hutchinson in 1970 here in Melbourne um, he used to have a lot of live input into the expanded cinema uh, work, both at the Age Gallery exhibition and at the maze that we ran for about five months. And, th and this had the generic title of <coughs> cinema poetry, didn't it? And, yep, and right. we'd devise events based around films we had and yeah. Gary would uh, mm -hmm. write poetry or improvise yeah. or get the audience to participate by, yeah. by moving their hands up into the film, yeah. uh, projected a film beam. And um, so we, we developed quite a few, quite a repertoire really. Once you get into this, there are endless variations um, that suggest themselves. And we even, Gary Hutchinson used to have an input where he would get political newsreel and he would uh, do poems over this newsreel footage of Bob Hawke or whatever. And, um, you know, so, you know, once you get into it, there are endless possibilities. Right. So you like the idea that you could recreate and change and yep. develop the performance yep. in mm, different yeah. performance settings. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That, that was the first of a series of what we called um, film theatre pieces. We, we no longer called them expanded cinema, really, because they, are, they were of a particular kind of expanded cinema, I suppose. That was the beginning of our association with La Mama Theatre in Melbourne, where we, we gave uh, several um, pieces, sometimes based on footage we'd already shot. In This Life's Body mm. was an example, or the second journey to Uluru, where we set up a, 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 an installation, and in some of them we had a tent and, and sand in, in the La Mama Theatre, and Corin would recreate the, the uh, actions of the filmmaker, labelling cans of film and so on. And uh, we, it was usually Corin who provided the, the, the voice aspect of these. Of course, there was a lot of live sound input which, uh, from the tape recorders, which Arthur had to work. But we're, we've always been very involved with theatre as uh, audience members right. and with experimental theatre in London and then in Melbourne. Uh, um, and um, 
it occurred to us, um, you know, that some of our most important experiences were at the theatre, which are unrecorded and irrepeatable experiences. And we also felt with the sort of film screenings we gave, um, how much an audience contributes to a, a film, you know, a cinema audience can contribute to um, a screening. Um, so a given film of ours, which we won't project hundreds of times in different venues, we came to realise that the film was a different experience even for us, mm. depending on where it was being shown. And you've often been present at screenings of your films, not all the time, no. but often you are. And is this sense of providing a, a slightly theatrical experience, is that one of the reasons why you've chosen not to transfer a lot of your work to video or digital media? Yeah, well, we want or? to get the highest quality um, possible film image and at our level in the industry to say the industry we can't afford to have really high quality uh digital copies made in fact i feel that the best digital print of works we've seen have been initiated digitally right. at the moment you start going film to digital well unless you write up and afford to pay unprecedented prices but, it's out of our range but the the image does change in all sorts of subtle ways sometimes not so subtle ways the three our three color separation films just uh, don't seem to work at all uh, as uh, anything other than a projected image because they're all about the film medium and the material and the action of light on the emulsion and and such and uh, we've seen video versions of these films where they just look like technical mistakes so all these experiences have put put the project of Cantrell films being digitized on hold for a while but we are slowly getting around to the notion of some of the films which can't be printed anymore because of the nature of film stocks changing and such we probably are going to have to do something about it so with um, the three color separation work and some of the other technical innovations and and um, pathways that you followed consistently in your work, like the hand printing and superimposition work and using different film stocks and not naturalistic imagery. Mm -hmm. did, did this work come out of um, the end image that you were trying to achieve or did it come out with experimenting with the materials that you had I, at I hand? I would say or? experimenting. Like with, with all the material we'd done filming on... Um, Eastman colour print stock. You know, one of the things with a lot of these offbeat film stocks, they're terribly slow, like something like 4ASA or 6ASA. Mm -hmm. Well, you need an, the intense light of Central Australia, uh, you know, to get that uh, sufficient light. Mm. So uh, we have used... Um, Film stocks that aren't designed at all to go in the in the camera, they're designed as print stocks in some right. cases, uh, just because we want to depart from the usual negpos um, Try them out, traditional happens, effect. Yeah. And um, so some of that was, I mean, we don't know how it looks until we try it. That's experimentation, if you like, uh, since no one else has done it before. And and the hand printing in in a dark room with very primitive means, using a pencil torch as the light source, or just bouncing a bit of light off a low ceiling down onto the uh, contact printing material um, achieves a, 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 an effect that ha hasn't gone through a camera at all and the colours are, are extremely rich and saturated. I mean, that's not something we necessarily invented. Man, Man Ray back in the 1920s was putting objects down on black and white film and springs and thumbtacks and so on in his return to reason. And again, uh, Len Lai did a little of, the, of that 
as, as well. But I think we pushed it into an area where we're, we're laying down pieces of film or film frames and uh, ver of various gauges on, onto raw stock and in the dark, um, literally in the dark sometimes because we don't really see what we're doing until... Well, it's a nightmare working in the dark, uh, hand printing. It's an absolute nightmare. You, you can't... You can't put the light on to see what you're doing. You, you just, um, you're just feeling and hoping for the so best. Sometimes when we were both doing it, I, I did all the hand printing stuff alone for Harry Hooten, but the other film we did for Flateria and Corin was at one end of the th jig and I was at the other and I'd, Corin was doing stuff I wasn't aware, <laughs> aware of until <laughs> the film came, came back from the lab. And uh, so that, that was extremely unpredictable. But the most extraordinary thing was with the hand printing, um, we're hand printing onto 35 with Super 8, Standard 8 and 16mm, was the film seems to have a will of its own. It's very hard to control it. You think, I want this to go straight, but it doesn't go straight. Yeah, it bends and, around, uh, springs uh, around. Things like that were quite... Um, but it seemed worthwhile pushing on. It was very much a project about the, about the film material, certainly, where you're confronted with the film material, with the Kodak writing on the edges of the film coming, going through and all that sort of stuff. Because one aspect of our work that's been recurring since the 1960s, late 1960s, is this idea of reworking our own work, mm -hmm. um, you know, almost like reworking our own film history. Uh, Redstone Dancer is a case in point, and a lot of that in Harry Hooten, and Flaterian, of course, and especially Island Fuse. Um, that was definitely a reworking of our past work, as a you know, like our own film history being reworked. Um, so that's something we're very interested in. And so the relationship between the form, the formal concerns of the films and the yeah. content of the films yeah. is a very close relationship in your work, isn't it? Yeah. You, you experiment with a technique and then mm. decide to use that mm. technique on a, on a particular topic or subject mm. or yeah. is it a kind of an organic process where... Well, yeah. for instance, if we're going to Central Australia to film, then that's like quite unknown, and uh, so that's unworked and unforeseen. But with a film like Island Fuse, we set up, we're going to make a film using past material as a sort of film history, right. same with Victorian. We, we invented the term uh, landforms and film forms, or landforms slash film forms, to suggest that we were looking for film forms that were appropriate to particular landscapes. Um, very tricky thing in, in cinema to deal with landscapes. They're usually backgrounds to narrative action, of course, in standard film. And, and in, in, in a sense, um, the challenge is to get something up on the screen that, that has something of the spirit and, and the uh, expanse of the la landscape. But that's, that's extremely uh, challenging um, because the, the landscape is, is a wonderful, enveloping, uh, huge natural event and to have to make decisions about how you frame that in, in a, in a mm. tiny film frame is, is very tricky. But and also with the landscape you realise how much it changes with different lights, different times of day, from day to day, season to season. Uh, for instance our film notes on the passage of time, most of it's filmed in the winter and then towards the end we have some shots filmed at the height of summer, and the, the light is so different, it's astounding. Um, the midwinter footage 
and the summer footage, it's quite, you know, amazing to see it. Right. So a lot of the decisions that. about the film would be made when you were there in the location with your cameras and stock yeah. or did yeah, you, we certainly, did you yes. I mean, do we, a lot we, of pre-planning or was it very kind of spontaneous? Well, Notes on the Passage of Time, of course, is a, is a sort of structural film sure. and um, there's a definite concept there. It's all filmed from the one position during the day. You know, we may even have marked up on the footpath or the road, um, it's a country road, um, beach road, uh, where the tripod was. Um, so we could return to it yeah, the next right. day. So we so. start, say, at 6.30 in the morning and work right. through till 5.30 at night, you know, every half hour, something like that. But a film like Two Women or Catajuta, which are more outback films? Yes, well, this is filming in an unknown mm -hmm. situation, right. somewhere where we've not been before, that, uh, somewhere we don't know and where there's no going back, um, you know, that you go there and you do it and then you, there's no going back the next day. The films, the two films we've made at Uluru, um, we were there both times, let's say about two, ten days, two weeks. So we could progressively develop ideas, but Catajuta, I think we only went there once. And certainly with two women, we, that were, again, was only once. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about Catajuta, seeing it's one of the films we're mm. showing in the exhibition. Mm. It begins very naturalistically, mm. shot from some beautiful aerial shots, and then you move down to the ground and shoot mm. around Catajuta. Approaching um, it from a distance. Yes. And, and then the film transforms into a very hyper-coloured, mm. unnaturalistic use of colour in mm. film stocks. Could you talk a little bit about how you put that film together? Did you plan mm. that progression from the beginning or well, did you develop it as you edited? And, and Not really to this extent, that um, we had never seen the results of filming on um, Eastman Colour print stock. Right. Um, so that, okay, we're, we're filming it, but we don't actually know what it's going to be like when we get it back and how we're going to make it compatible with uh, colour reversal. The main part of the film was filmed on Ectochrome Commercial, uh, which is a, a reversal, a colour reversal stock. So here we are trying to make this incompatible uh, negative work with that. So, um, and then of course in Catajuta there's we're bypacking neg and pos. All this has been so worked that, that, out that afterwards when we're back mm. in Melbourne. So yeah, the uh, the the material at the beginning of the film is is naturalistic. We wanted it to have. We wanted the 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 environment, the the um, the rock structures to have some chance to um, develop in a slow way the the quality and the atmosphere of the place because it was a strange place to to venture into and. Strange on all sorts of levels. The bird calls, the the formation of the domes, which are, are worn down into these almost perfect sort of half egg-shaped um, domes with strange geologic uh, circular rows of circular holes on them that look like portholes on a on a spacecraft or something like that, or in some cases eyes. Mm -hmm. And we began to feel more and more and more even unnerved and uneasy mm. uh, ab ab about being there. We knew that this was a highly sacred place and, and we felt that we were uh, bit by bit more and more uh, intruding somewhere where we weren't supposed to be. So we tried to sort of suggest that and we filmed on the, on the, the material that, which is designed for printing on, not sh shooting on, which yields a, a very extraordinary negative image. Um, 
And it, it occurred to us when we saw all this back that, that it seemed to be saying something about the prehistoric nature of, um, of the place, how, how it developed perhaps geologically and, and spiritually. And we slowed the birds down uh, about an octave and they became almost human sounds, the bird calls towards the end. Um, quite, well, quite like strange wild beasts or yeah, something. Yeah, animal but sounds. You, you see, the the other thing is this. Okay, we filmed on on um, Eastman Colour Print Stock, but if it hadn't worked, okay, we don't use it. Uh, so you see that when we got back to Melbourne, you know, a month later and had it all processed, um, well, then you, you decide, well, that's pointless and useless or it's got terrific possibilities and how to make it work. Right. So, I mean, because we're not a commercial operation, if it doesn't work, okay, it doesn't work. It doesn't right. matter. Um, but then we found it did work, so we developed the idea with refilming it and bypacking, that is putting two layers of image together and, and refilming that and uh, sort of extending this whole notion of the, of the strangeness and even the alien quality of, of the places if it's on another planet. Right. So it's a mixture of intuition and planning and technology mm, yeah. and the material reality of what you've got to work with. I mean, look, it's the same with sound for film. Arthur does um, the sound for almost all of our mm -hmm. films. And he can afford, uh, because, you know, there's no value, money value on our time, uh, to spend hours developing a sound but if it doesn't work, okay, you start again. But I guess because your films don't have stories and mm. don't have a narrative mm. and don't have a lot of uh, words in them for the most part, that opens up the whole area of sound, doesn't it? The aim usually is to find a sound that that relates to the image in some way or counterpoints um, with the image. And very often it seemed to us that we were spending more time on the, on the sound than we had with the, with the picture. Mm. Well, um, we should talk about Cantrell's Film Notes. Mm. It's a journal that you edited and produced and distributed for mm. 30 years. Yep. A really remarkable. 1971 to 2000. Yes. Yeah. Could yes. you tell us a little bit about how the magazine started? Well, I think how it started was in 1970. There was such a hostile um, attitude on the part of film critics towards experimental film. I mean, you know, like, we were getting terrible reviews for Harry Hooton and Albie Toms that had bad reviews for Marinetti and his work, a lot of sarcasm. I remember Colin Bennett said once about Harry Hooton, uh, something about it might be your cup of tea, but it's not mine, you know, that's sort of a put down. I had this idea that if, it, if something was in print, people would respect it more. Mm -hmm. So we brought yeah. out the first issue of Cantrell's Film Notes for a variety of reasons. And I was right that all our, our first subscribers were the people who were the most critical of us. So when we first began it, we didn't know if, if it would take off. And all the first issues were Ronioed or Gestetnid um, with... Uh, offset printed covers, it was all, they were all hand stapled, so we get all these pages, arrange them in there. They didn't even have page numbers on them at that time. In fact, the first four issues didn't even have the issue number on the front cover. Uh, it wasn't until about issue five, I think, that we started. To well, we realised by issue five that it wasn't <laughs> going to stop. I mean, every issue seemed to be the last issue for the first. Yeah, well, four we weren't. So. We just weren't sure. 
And also, we weren't sure about where is the content going to come from. But once you get started on this, there's endless content waiting to be... And more and more uh, people were turning to, yeah. to experimental filmmaking. Mm. Um, I, I mean, we're not going to claim credit for it, but it, but it did help having the magazine around mm. that, that publicised mm. um, mm. new work. And, and uh, a very important festi filmmaker's festival of experimental film was set up in, in Sydney by uh, Aggie Reed of... of uh, was working there. 1971. Mm, and we covered that very well and there we met for the first time Dushan Marek and, and Paul Winkler and these sort of people. Um, so it began to expand really the whole scene. And, and also we made a policy that we wouldn't have advertising. First of all if we'd had advertising we would have had to have paid sales tax. Uh, so, all right, you go out and you work your guts out trying to get advertisements, but then you've got to pay sales tax. So we thought we won't have advertising. But we could also be as extravagant as we liked in terms of length of article. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, we didn't have to worry about having mm -hmm. um, fitting things in between ads or whatever. If we wanted to have a really long piece about someone, like very early on we did a very long piece about uh, Hugh McSpedden, who made films, but he was primarily a light show person. But having total control, we could say, okay, we'll do a big piece about um, a light show artist, even uh, you know, more than a third of the mag of the magazine or something like that. So we had that total control. We could do what we liked, um, and we've always stayed with that. And we've tried to assiduously avoid going for big names. We have had some big name people in the magazine, but it's um, we've had some really offbeat, wacky, unknown sort of people. Uh, really and in many cases, the, the coverage in our publication is the only evidence of, mm. uh, that they existed yeah. because their work has disappeared yeah. and it's they have an disappeared in some cases. Yeah. So and it, if we wanted to have poems or, you know, things that weren't even about film, you know, it's our magazine. We can do what we like. So we could, we could have you know all those wonderful um, visual poems by Jazz Duke. And in the, some um, of the first issues, we, we, we were sticking things onto mm. the sheets of paper, bits mm. of film, and uh, this kind of thing. Postcards. Uh, or a, a sheet of red cellophane mm. behind the front cover with holes cut in the front cover to show the cellophane, mm. and uh, it, it was very much uh, a kitchen uh, industry, sort of cottage industry uh, you production. Also, you also invited people to design their own layouts, didn't you? Yeah, that, that became uh, more and more, it seemed, it, seemed a, it was almost a policy of ours to invite them to do it, and a lot of them responded and came up with a page design which was much better than mm. anything I could have Especially done. people like Xerox Dreamflesh, or Madge Green and um, you and Cameron Stephen Theatre of the Hill. Stephen Ball did some marvelous yeah, stuff. Yeah, Stephen Ball did a lot, yeah. So, so um, unfortunately, of course, all the first issues for quite a while were in black and white. Colour printing in 1970 no, was almost no, out, of the, was out of the question. I mean, newspapers were still black and white, and most magazines had some colour, but were also black and white. We, we didn't go to colour until about the mid-1980s, about 1986, and I feel it would have been much better for the magazine if we had gone to colour a few years earlier, but mm -hmm. we didn't. Uh, yeah. it wasn't but even then, we weren't all colour. We were. We had some inserts of mm. colour, um, eight pages. Mm. And then, of course, at first we were do, we were doing everything. I was doing all the darkroom work and making the photographs and. 
Uh, even for a while when it was so expensive, while I was putting the printer's dot, the raster, into the photographs so they could all just be shot as line negs um, together with the text that made it much cheaper. Um, and then, of course, after we were pasting down all these little bits of words and paragraphs. Pasting and down corrections. Pictures, and sometimes you'd be pasting down something that was like two millimetres wide and three millimetres long and so on, where a word had to be changed. It was extraordinary, I, just as well I had good eyesight back then. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, desktop publishing came in and we began to realise that this was going to be a breakthrough. And the most recent issues are really quite handsome in terms of yeah. colour. Mm. Um, and of course, the, the magazine, we lived in America for two years from 1973 to 1975, and that really got the magazine on its feet because we were able to get a lot of um, American University and Museum and Art Gallery subscriptions and back issue, you know, they got all the back issues. Um, and, you know, America, Canada, USA and Canada. And that really gave a very solid foundation for the magazine. A lot of back issues were sold and subscriptions and things like that. Uh, I think if we'd been stuck in Australia, um, it would have been much more difficult because it's too small here. But establishing that subscri subscription base in North America and then later in New Zealand and uh, Europe. Corinne, maybe we could just talk a bit about In This Life's Body, mm -hmm. your autobiographical feature film. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's a very personal film and you made it almost completely out of still photos. Yeah. Would you like to talk a little bit about that process? Did you start by wanting to make a film about your life or did you start with a whole collection of photographs and you thought, oh, here's a film in these photos? Well, or... I was very interested in, in um, just what a representation of my life, my young life, my childhood especially, that I had in photographs. Uh, my mother um, used to do, she had a brownie box camera and she did quite a lot of um, photographs. Um, and, but there are big gaps in my life. There's whole periods where there are no photographs at all. But I was extremely interested in having a, a look at the photographs of my childhood, some of which I, I hadn't recalled seeing before. And I just became very interested in playing around um, with combinations of, uh, you know, often when people take photographs, they take three or four uh, at a time and, you know, playing around with those um, combinations. And I became very interested also in professional, uh, the photographs of me taken by professional photographers, including street photographers. I mean, I still am amazed at the... Um, the skill of street photographers, because mm -hmm. when they took your photo, it didn't mean you were going to buy it. You know, they give you a card, and then you had to make the effort uh, to go to somewhere in the city, go up to the second floor, and see the proof sheet. And if you didn't buy, well, that was their bad luck. But fortunately, my mother was one of these people who, although you know, we had a great struggle financially during the 1930s. You know, she would always, you know, if she liked a photo, she would, she would um, I think it was a shilling a print, what is that, 10 cents? Mm -hmm. She would always get um, a copy. It, it wasn't that we were so poor that she would pass on that. Um, and so you never thought to, you, you decided to make the film completely out of still images. Well, Did look, you ever I wanted consider... to get away from this whole feminist whinging and so on uh, that was going on in the early 1980s and to make something, and this is my problem with the film, it's too positive and it's too upbeat 
uh, and I wanted to get away from the conventions of being interviewed. A lot of friends said, you know, you, you, you should, shouldn't you have an interview? Mm -hmm. But I felt that this would make it too diffuse, right. that if it was scripted, you could get much more information, much more content into it right. than, you know, rambling on in some interview situation <laughs> like this. Um, and then the other cliche and convention is having sound effects right. uh, and um, music. There's no music, there are no sound effects whatsoever in the right. film. And also, I, I think the film is devoid of panning and... There's um, no camera movement. Uh, yet, no, there's yeah, no over, camera movement. Over, I mean, even on the rostrum... There's, there's no panning, is there? No, no. Uh, when we were sh uh, shooting the photos on the rostrum, mm. we avoided anything like uh, tracking into detail. Mm. They're, they're, they're very much presented with their deckle edges and mm. cut edges yeah. and, and so on. As, but we do go in for close-ups of photos. Oh, yeah, yeah, we do isolate but the details. the whole thing was, you know, to get away from all these... Uh, you know, lazy conventions of sound effects and um, zooming and panning and all this sort of thing and just have uh, clean cut. There are fades, though, aren't there? Fades, yeah, and, there and there are mixes, dissolves at a yeah. couple of yeah. points where we're dissolving from one yeah. image to another, but uh, th that has another effect again. But I really am glad that, you know, in this two-and-a-half-hour film, there are no, there's no sound effects, no music, nothing like that. I mean, it, we did think at the time, wouldn't it be interesting to do this film with no narration and just music uh, from the uh, 1930s or 40s uh, or whatever, but then you, you're into uh, the whole <clears throat> music copyright right. thing, and that's a nightmare right. Um, right. that we wouldn't want to put ourselves through. Right. I, can't, I can't quite <clears throat> imagine that. That film without your voiceover, but yeah. it would have been even more formally yeah. exacting. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a little bit like some of the landscape films where you're responding to the landscape of photographs yeah. Yeah. And, and seeing what's the best filmic treatment and the best yeah. ordering. And yeah. Yeah. So the film on one level becomes a film about photography really yeah. and the different yeah. modes of, of presentation in photography. And, and then there's uh, so another on. very important part as the film developed I became very interested in seeing family resemblances, mm -hmm. uh, not just with my parents, but with my grandparents on both sides. Um, and also in this, in this matter of posture and gesture. Uh, you know, I, I have this idea, and I think it's true, uh, and it's in the film where I've done montages of myself, you know, two years old, uh, 15, 50, and so on, seeing the same type of posture and movement, you know, when walking uh, or expressions in the face and things like that. So there's quite a lot towards the end of the film of comparing myself at different ages. And I've tried to pick photos that show the same posture in walking or something like that. Yeah. And then I've done a whole series of montages of myself uh, with, well, for instance, when I'm 17 with my mother when she was 17, my father when he was 17, mm -hmm. uh, and then with my um, grandparents, you know, things like that. Just trying to pick up, um, you know, those similarities of expression um, and so on across the generations um, and so on. But my main dissatisfaction with the film now is it's too upbeat. You know, I deliberately yeah. didn't want it to be another whinging feminist film, uh, but uh, it's far too positive and far too upbeat um, that, um, you know, I find grating now. Oh, it's, okay. you know, yeah. uh, but... Um, it's one version of... 
your yeah, last Yeah, one film. version. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is I made that film when I was, uh, when I was born in 1928, so 30. I made that film when I was about 56, 57 years old. And now I'm in my early 80s. I feel I've got a greater depth of understanding of mm -hmm. certain relationships mm -hmm. and social uh, situations that I didn't even understand in my 50s mm -hmm. and I really believe it's very important to keep on re-evaluating and re-examining uh, your life and your own history continuously and doing that now I do see things quite differently you think oh someone in their 50s would be a mature adult but not necessarily um, because I really see, th see things quite differently now right. to the way I did say What's that, almost 30 years ago? Um, in the exhibition, we're showing some work by your son, Ivor. Could you talk a little bit about the films that he's made with you? Yes, well, I, I, Ivor just naturally, having been living in a, a filmmaking family since uh, he was born, I suppose, um, ha, ha, imbued quite a lot of uh, instinctive ability, certainly in animation. Um, and he knows all about, you know, negative and positive and close up and long shot, and mm. he just intuitively imbibed mm. all those conventions of filmmaking without having <coughs> to even discuss it. And, and he has his own attitude to to repetition and colour and uh, and and reworking Im image. Since since he has autism, he he has a. a a preoccupation towards um, order and, and repetition and um, organising himself in, in a specific way, which turns out to be quite useful in, in filmmaking. So, he, I mean, he's been working on an animation now, which are eventually our film. This will be really our first digital production, um, I guess. Um, and it's rich with detail. It's going to be quite extraordinary seeing this, since he, he draws and paints the background afresh for each cell, and Walt, Walt Disney would never be able to deal with that. And um, uh, so it's going to be quite extraordinary when it. When, when it's, do you think that will be finished? Oh, Any idea? It will probably be dead before it happens. <laughs> but, but I think the two films that you're showing um, in the exhibition, uh, you know, they're wonderful films. Yeah. The the, the hand-drawn film. This is this was his uh, third hand-drawn film. Was yes, it or uh, mm. second? I can't remember. Uh, there was. Film with circles, squares, triangles, lines, and dots. And I think it was the, right, really only those two. And I was just going to ask you, just speaking about acquiring wisdom as you get older, would you have any advice for young filmmakers who are starting out to work outside of the mainstream, like like no, you and I? No, no, I have no advice. No advice. <laughs> no, if you're committed, you'll find your own way. Yeah, that's, you, that's good. You advice. have to have your own vision and to be somewhat obsessed and so on and. Um, and everyone comes to that in a, in a different way. Mm. And we, I mean, I don't mind giving a bit of technical advice here and there. But Even that you've got to find for yourself. <laughs> like we have all sorts of people coming to Arthur and saying, how do you do three colour separation? You've got to find it out for yourself. It's all related to the film stock you're using, all this sort of thing. It, it, uh, I mean, uh, that's part of the process, sort of mm. discovering it yourself. Mm. Mm. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.